I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan. It was, I think, one of the most sort of shocking and you know, striking sights that I've ever seen. The, the sheer scale of the destruction in Rica Zentakata. The, the town far inland had been turned basically into a sea of debris. It's the sort of site that will stay with me forever. One year ago, a devastating earthquake measuring nine on the Richter scale rocked Japan's northeast, triggering a tsunami that brought widespread devastation and left some 20,000 dead. The resulting nuclear crisis at Fukushima Daiichi power plant led to a large-scale evacuation. As the victims of the quake struggle to regain some normality a year on, the great rebuilding of the Northeast is also underway. Joining me down the line from Rikuzen Takata in Japan in the afflicted area is Mir Diki, the FT's Tokyo bureau chief, and here in the studio is former Tokyo correspondent Lindsay Whip. The two of them were some of the first reporters on the ground after the disaster. Muir, why don't we start with you? You guys both traveled uh, very quickly to the Northeast. Uh, why don't you just remember for us what those first few days were like? Well, it was uh, quite an odyssey getting to the Northeast coast. Uh, and in fact, when we started to get to the edges of the, the real disaster zone in, in northern Ibaragi prefecture, we were then told to uh, turn around and head south because of the explosion at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. So we had to go back, basically back to Tokyo, and then fly to Yamagata on the other side of the island, and then and then Lindsay drove across uh, a very long way. And, and, and so at the end uh, of the day on the Sunday, we got to Rikuzen-Takata, and and it was, I think, one of the most sort of shocking and you know striking sights that I've ever seen. The the, the sheer scale of the destruction in Rikuzen-Takata. The, the town far inland had been turned basically into a sea of debris. It's the sort of site that will stay with me forever. Lindsay, what do you remember from that day? After we, when we arrived in Rikuzen-Takata, it was that sort of shock because we had been driving quite high up and so when we dropped down, was there was this immediate impact seeing this mass destruction and it was quite difficult for the brain. The brain was desperately searching for something to make sense of. And you couldn't because there was nothing there to make sense of. Also, you're sort of looking around and it was getting to dusk and everything seemed so meaningless because it doesn't make sense anymore. It all was, everything was just inert. Who was the first person you came across when you got to Rikos and Takata? Mir? It's interesting. We, we were actually stopped um, as we as we dropped down towards Rikosankata City by by some uh, volunteer firemen who had heard uh, another tsunami uh, announcement, and so we're stopping all the traffic from going towards the town. And while we were waiting for to be allowed to continue, we met a person who worked at the Sake Brewery in Rikosankata, and and he gave a very graphic description of what he'd seen. He had uh, barely escaped with his life, and the brewery was destroyed. So anyway, he he was telling me things. I remember taking notes and and wondering about some of the details. Um, things, for example, the, the, the waves seemed to smoke as it came smashing in through the brewery and, and smoke and steam coming off the top of it. And he said, as he was saying it, he obviously couldn't quite 
understand how that could be, but it, it was what he'd seen. And then, of course, afterwards we saw some of the videos that survivors had taken. And, and indeed, in many places, it, the flume of spray and in some places burning um, things and smoke coming off them. And it was just one of those other kind of sights that uh, that he... Um, well, he will certainly never forget that, and he was able to give us actually quite an accurate picture of, of what it had been like. You hear it, and then you see it, uh, and I've been up to the disaster zone a dozen times, I guess, since then, and every time you look at these concrete buildings that have been scoured right through, and, and some of them destroyed, and the whole flat area that used to be blocks of wooden houses, things like buses just turned into mangled wrecks and, and steel poles bent down to the ground by the force of the water, the sheer power of it is, is something you never quite get used to. Muir, I asked you who the first person you ran into uh, on that trip was. Who's the most memorable character you've run into over the past year? That would be very hard to say because there are lots of people who really shown just extraordinary, I would say, grace in the face of absolutely unspeakable loss. One person that sticks to memory, just as an example, a, a very nice guy that um, that we met, and he was actually trying to get, the, the transport was very difficult, so, so we gave him a lift. When he realized that we were trying to find things and, and, and there, there were things we needed for our stories, he was very helpful with that. He, he, it was clear from the start that he was very concerned about, about our welfare and our work, uh, whereas to me, you know, what he had He'd just lost family members. He'd just lost his mother, and he couldn't find her, and it was a, just a, a terrible situation for him. But he was dealing with that with dignity and looking around and, and seeking to help other people. And I, I was very struck by that. I just hope that, uh, you know, if disaster ever comes to me, that I can deal with it with half of the, the stoicism and the, the grace that people have shown up here. I was very moved, I think, by the, the way that people in general, and, and individuals like him in particular, uh, dealt with it. Lindsay, is there one character that sticks out for you? One of them was probably the family that I met when I went up a month afterwards and I was in a small town called Ogawa, which was just in Miyagi Prefecture, and they'd lost their daughter to the tsunami. But this town was five kilometres inland on the river and the tsunami had swept up the river and basically destroyed the entire school and the pupils and the teachers. And there was about 104 students. There was probably 74 that had been killed. And this family was just absolutely devastated and it just really struck me the difficulty with dealing with something like this when a there's no one really to blame so there was no way of getting through it and we spent the two minutes there was a commemoration so you do a two minute silence and I was in their the family's house there and it was the first time I'd seen anyone break down and cry and that was a month on. Now Muir you as you say you've uh, done a dozen trips up there in the, in, in the past year what is the difference that you see on the ground now? Across most of Tohoku, the, the northeast, you know, life is very much back to normal, and it was quite a while ago, with the exception of the areas around Fukushima. And, you know, for, there's radiation there, but I would say it's only a threat uh, or even a potential threat for people who are living in the area long term. For visitors, it's fine. But, you know, you can visit, you could uh, enjoy yourself. I've taken my family to Tohoku for a number of holidays since then. It's in, in general, life across the region is pretty much back to normal. Along the devastated communities on the coast, though, it's still very, very far from normal. And I think there's recovery. People have relief has happened and, and basically people are housed and, and basically people can live. But actually restoring many of these communities to anything like normality is going to take an extremely long time. And the last couple of days, I've been on, on one side depressed despite the recognition of the scale of the challenge ahead of people and the great sadness. It's still, you know, across many of these communities. 
but also inspired because around the edges of towns like Bukazentakata that were completely, uh, almost completely gutted. There is a lot of work being done. A lot of people are restarting businesses, shops are opening in prefab houses. Fishermen, uh, I met a, 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 a seaweed farmer today who'd brought in the first crop of seaweed, first harvest of seaweed, sorry, uh, since the, the disaster and, and another who got his first boat, uh, a new boat, two, two or three days ago. And, and they're delighted to be able to work and to, to um, you know, restart. But for everybody, it's it's uh, in these coastal communities. It's still everybody knows it's a it's a it's a long, long road ahead of them. Muir spoke earlier to one of the survivors of the quake, Makoto Chida. He's a 37-year-old oyster farmer in Rikuzen Takata. I'm an oyster farmer in Rikuzen Takata. Each of my family members had a different job, but they were all safe. Three of my boats and all of the 800 rafts were drifted away. I lost everything. But I am 37 years old and still young, so I never thought about quitting my job. Instead, I thought about starting over from scratch. The oyster farming has recovered to a third of the previous level. I'm working every day, hoping to have a 100% recovery by next year or the year after. Oysters from the Hirota Bay are traded at the highest prices in Japan. I will keep working hard for those people who have a delight in oysters. Muir, you also recently went back into uh, the exclusion zone with a family and have written very movingly about it for our our weekend magazine. Just tell us a little bit more about that zone and what remains a no-go area for most Japanese. It's essentially an area that's been put around the the planet. It's been tweaked now. At the the beginning, it was a a simple radius. Now they're they're gradually trying to restrict access only to the areas with the highest levels of contamination. And and in fact, some communities are starting to move back to towns on the edge of the zone. But, you know, for people whose homes are in those exclusion areas, and there's also essentially a voluntary evacuation area, which is uh, beyond the exclusion zone, but which also pretty much now depopulated. You know, for people whose homes in, are in those areas, it's an extremely difficult situation because some of them, I think, understand that it's, it's likely to be decades before they're allowed to, to go back, and, and, and in many cases never will be, and if they're farmers, it may not be possible in their lifetimes to, to farm their fields again. And, but they don't know, and, and radiation risk itself is highly contested. Many people would say, that many scientists would say that worry about radiation has spread much, much more widely than it uh, needs to have. Uh, but other people, other experts and scientists argue that, in fact, the risk could be quite high for long-term health of staying in these areas. So, you know, for people, for ordinary people who don't have a science background and a strong opinion, it's very difficult to know what to believe. Um, the anxiety levels are extremely high and the social stress and disruption is extraordinary. Lindsay, a year on, what is going to be the legacy of all this? Well, I think there will be several, but one that I would like to point out is probably the impact on the demographics of Japan. It almost feels like that the Northeast is sort of a microcosm of what's happening in Japan demographically. When we would go into the the evacuation centres, that it would feel like the majority of the people, even though it wasn't the majority, it would be a good sort of 30% were over 65 to 70. That's huge. Um, So it's so accelerated in the North, and so people who were already 
leaving to work in Tokyo and other large cities, that's only going to be accelerated by this tsunami, um, the legacy of the tsunami, if the government doesn't work hard enough to get regeneration happening in a way that keeps young people in that area. And then on the psychological front, the government has been doing work with children and an old age pensioners. There are a few groups who have been concerned about preschool children and how to deal with the trauma and the shock of the earthquake and the tsunami. They've been through sort of play therapy in order to try and help them deal with this situation. But then when you go to the likes of um, sort of Fukushima, where you've also got the radiation concerns, one of the therapists that I was speaking to in that prefecture was saying that the families and mothers face a huge quandary about whether to let their children play outside or not. And if they didn't let them play outside, then there had been already effects of the children not having enough sunlight and enough exercise and so they were catching colds quicker but then if they did let them outside they felt worried about whether they were then responsible for giving their children exposure to radiation and so and that's not going to go away for the rest of their lives probably and that's a huge worry. Mir? Well I think there'll be a lot of different legacies some of them good some of them bad the the outpouring of volunteerism uh, tens of thousands of volunteers rushing to the northeast and, and many still here working very hard um, has has been, I think, an inspiration society, and that 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 will have long term um, effects. Uh, you know, less positively, the, um, the the loss of trust, as I mentioned before, connected with the the nuclear crisis and its handling, I think, will also have effects. What they are, I, I, it'd be very hard to chart at this moment. But um, I think many people last year, immediately after the the, the disaster. Um, thought or, or hoped that in itself it would kind of be a, a turning point for the nation and that it would galvanize Japanese politics and society to kind of break out of something of a funk. It's easy to overstate, but Japan has been in something of a funk for quite a while um, and sort of give the country its energy back maybe in the way that uh, in the way that defeat in the Second World War actually became the, the start of the economic miracle and this extraordinary success that Japan then, then later enjoyed. I think those kind of hopes may be overdone. It's, it hasn't wiped the slate clean. It's, it's terribly big, but in many people in Japan, as I say, life has gone back to normal. They don't have to change things, and it's still a very successful country, and things are difficult to change. But I do think it's, it's very important that, that Japan make a, a success to the maximum possible of reconstruction. I think it will. Failure in the Northeast will sap confidence in the country. It will have great human cost, and Whereas success in creating new sustainable communities, well, as if you can tackle a declining demographic and a rapidly aging society here in, in the Northeast, then, then you can do it na- nationwide. And if you can do it nationwide, it will be an example for the world. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Lindsay Whip in London and Muir Dickey down the line from the affected area in Rikuzen Takata. World Weekly was produced by Serena Tarling. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.